John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. Then, the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This is the written and the inerrant word of God. Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's just like that. When an event is worth celebrating, it's worth celebrating again and again and again. Like the 4th of July and the independence of our nation from British rule, which we celebrate every year with fireworks. Like a wedding anniversary. We had three in the church family in May. And we may celebrate that with a card or a gift. Or on another note, like Memorial Day remembering the war dead who sacrificed their life in defense of our republic and the promotion of freedom around the world, which we usually observe with parades, but perhaps this year only with flowers at a grave. I know I shall be placing flowers at the grave of a Revolutionary War soldier this weekend, a son of the American Revolution, when I visit his gravesite in Maine this weekend. Here in 2020, we remember particularly those in this the 50th anniversary of victory by Allied forces in Europe and in the Pacific. VE Day, May 8, 1945, as surrender papers were signed by German General Jodl before Eisenhower, who insisted on an absolute surrender. And then victory over Japan, VJ Day, August 15, when it was announced by President Truman. September 2nd, the treaty signed on the battleship USS Missouri in the presence of General MacArthur. But I suggest to you that there is an event to be celebrated not just every year, but every week. It is cosmic in scope, life-changing in consequence, liberating in power, life-giving when believed upon. And it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it is meant to be commemorated more than once a year on Easter, but rather every week with the public worship of God. Now I admit we're doing something a little different here, celebrating Easter on April 12th and May 24th. But at the suggestion of a member of our church, I thought it was worthwhile since we didn't see each other physically on the former date. And as we come together 
It is a resurrection of a sort of our life together as a physical worshiping body. As the former patterns of gathering in our congregation are going to resume slowly with appropriate safeguards in place, we have a little celebrating to do as a society as we come back together again. It would be good to remember that though the focus of this particular service is the resurrection with resurrection hymns, it is every single Sunday service that is a celebration of that event. The context of the passage I read a moment ago is as follows. Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John all found an empty tomb on Easter morning. And then Mary Magdalene, met a man she did not recognize in the garden where Jesus' blood had been laid and thought him to be a gardener. But this man revealed himself to her as Jesus and was recognized by her as Jesus, her Rabboni, when Jesus pronounced Mary's name personally, Mary. Later, that same day, Jesus' disciples were gathered and that is where we pick up the action on Easter morning with this outline, if you want to take note. Verse 19a, disciples meet the risen Christ assembling on the first day of the week. Verse 19a. Verse 19b through 21a, disciples meet their crucified provider of peace. 19b through 21a. And then finally, verses 21b through 23, disciples meet the Spirit, sending them to service. So beginning with the first point, verse 19a, disciples meet the risen Christ, assembling on the first day of the week. Reading from the scripture, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled. This is the identification of the day when the disciples were assembled. At, and it, that identification is given at the beginning of the verse. The same day at evening. Now what day was that? Looking back at the events previous in the chapter, it was the day when the empty tomb was discovered. It was the day when Jesus revealed himself to Mary. And going back to 20 verse 1, it was now on the first day of the week. It was the first day of the week. And then to say the same day at evening is to identify it as being the evening of the first day. But that's not enough identification for God. God inspires the Apostle John to drive the point home further. It was the same day at evening. That day was the first day, as we learn from 21. But John repeats himself, writing, being the first day of the week. Such repetition is intentional and instructive. The first day is associated with the resurrection. And what are they doing? They are gathering on that day. We read of the resurrection in Mark 16, 9, when he arose early on the first day of the week. And this is the day when these disciples are assembling. They're assembling in fear, but they are going to meet the Savior. 
This first day has been associated for, with assembling for worship from the beginning of the church. In Acts 20, verse 7, we read 27 of Acts. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. This is a picture of a worship service, including preaching and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And then in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also on the first day of the week that each one of you lay something aside. This is a picture of the receiving of offerings at a stated service of worship. And he says, do it this way so that no collections would be uh, made when I come. He didn't want them to be collecting just when he was there. He wanted it on a weekly basis, on the first day, to be systematically collected, as we do even in our offerings here at Redeemer. And Revelation 1.10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. One commentator talks about this. This is John writing in Revelation, and he's saying he was unable to meet with the saints in the public worship of that day. Yet he was employed in spiritual contemplations and exercises, and was under a more than ordinary influence of the Spirit of God, unquote. And just as so many of us and so many of you today watching on Zoom or listening on the tape, you have been driven away from the house and worship of God by the threat of pestilence and disease. And I hope that these recorded services will help you to be employed in spiritual contemplations and exercises. As we go on, we hear from Justin Martyr. He talked about a day he called Sunday. And the Christians meet together in one place and read the scriptures and pray together and administer the ordinance of the supper. And Barnabas, the friend of Paul, in his writings outside the scripture, he says he calls this first day the eighth day in distinction from the seventh day Sabbath of the Jews. And he says this eighth day is like the beginning of another world. And so on the eighth day, they joyfully manifested praise. This day was known by the ancients by the name of the Lord's Day. We assemble weekly on the Lord's Day for worship because it honors the resurrected Lord and embodies ourselves physically here as the body of Christ. When we are scattered in our daily lives through the week, we are members of his body, like a foot, an eye, an ear, a hand, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12. We are members. We are parts of the body. But it is only as we are gathered in worship that we are the body of Christ, assembled as redeemed believers. We count ourselves as part of this new creation, this new body. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And this applies to us now, even before the day of the Lord, when we will receive our transformed bodies. For we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Assembling physically for the worship of God is the chief means by which we identify personally as being part of this new creation reality that God has redeemed a people for himself, the gathered body of Christ. And as large and or small as it may seem to you, sitting in these scattered cars across this field, you are a sign and a portent of the second coming of Christ. And thus the concern in 1 Thessalonians 4 that there wouldn't be anybody left behind, that those who had died first would be raised up first and be with Jesus, and then he would raise up and give new bodies to all those who were still alive when he came the second time. You see, even at the second coming, there's going to be no such thing as a secret rapture. Oh, there'll be a rapture, all right, but it'll be the most glorious scene in human history. And you, right here, these cars gathered are a sign and a portent pointing to that victory of our risen Lord who will come again for his people. That word assembled there in verse 19. Look at that word. It is sunago. Soon means association, companionship, togetherness. Ago means to lead or to bring or to induce. And so to be sunago is like to be led into companionship, to be led into association. It's the name that's beneath that name you're well familiar with, a synagogue. And so to be gathered and to be assembled in this way is not just to hang out. It is to be summoned to hang out, to be brought together. There's something or someone compelling us to be together. And in the case of these disciples that day, what was that something? It was fear. It was fear of the Jews. And there they sat with the doors shut. That was what compelled them to gather. The fear of the tangible danger that they felt as the closest disciples of Jesus, that if the Jews had done that to Jesus, what were they going to do to us? They may have recalled that the last time they felt so threatened was on the night before Jesus was crucified, when, as we read in John 18, verse 8, Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. And Jesus was being arrested then in Gethsemane, and his disciples went their way at his release. His authority won their release. They were in the process of being captured because the word let these go their way implies that there was a capturing intention on the part of those soldiers. Jesus had protected them, had been their active advocate. And in a sacrificial way, he said, I am he, take me, let these go their way. And this, now today, here is our first step back to corporate worship. Compelled not by fear, but rather by God's call it's called love that we would express together our trust commitment as a people to proclaim his glory the glory of the resurrected and living Christ who 
who said on our behalf, I am he, take me, let these go their way. That's what he said on the cross. I am he, take me, let these sinners be saved. Let them go their way. And so our fear is drained because this Jesus is alive. And our second point of the sermon is, we don't fear, instead we have peace. Disciples meet their crucified provider of peace, verses 19b and 21a. We know in verse 20, the dramatic demonstration that Jesus makes to his first disciples and to us. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Christ shall always be the crucified wounds. Those wounds are apologetic proofs. They are a testimony of power and they are an emblem of grace. The wounds are apologetic proofs, proving to the original disciples and to all disciples like us who meet this Savior through their testimony that this man standing before us, this resurrected Christ, was the very same man who died on the cross on Good Friday. It is also a testimony of his power. If Jesus can be put to death this way, with these wounds that ravaged his body and come back to life, resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit, well then that God has all power to bring hope to those who have union with him in faith. As we read in Romans 8:11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, <coughs> that's the union with Christ. We are having the Holy Spirit dwell in us, and he mediates to us the presence of Christ. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Your mortal bodies also will receive life. No matter what you have been through in this COVID-19 crisis, as a believer, the risen Lord is here today to meet you in that grief, even if it is unto death, that you would be then raised again. The power that gave Jesus this resurrection body with the wounds is the power that's going to give you new life. It is also an emblem of grace. These wounds are emblems of his sacrifice, signs of his mercy, eternal reminders of his sacrificial love at the cross of Calvary. Ever and always, believers will be throughout eternity trophies of God's grace, even when we are transformed and given new bodies in the new heaven and the new earth. Christ stands as our guarantor. He is the surety of God's sacrifice in the words of Charles Wesley's hymn. My God is reconciled, his pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child, I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh, with confidence I now draw nigh, and Father, Abba, Father, cry. We have been reconciled with God. He is our Father, we call him Abba, a personal form of that fatherhood. We have peace with God, and we have the peace 
of God. Peace with God in that we're no longer enemies. We are no longer the considered the ungodly, but rather we are accounted redeemed sinners and we are justified people of God. In Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're no longer just sinners. We are redeemed sinners. We're no longer ungodly, which happens just a couple verses before Romans 5.8. We are accounted righteous. We're no longer enemies, which comes a few verses after Romans 5.8. We are friends of God. Do you need a friend today? Do you need someone just to hear you out? Pray to your Savior Jesus. He will listen to the whole truth. He will listen to the whole truth of your heart, no matter what is there. He is not ashamed of your grief. He is not ashamed of your doubts. He is not going to look down his nose at you with what you bring to him. Come to him this day. Have peace with God. You are reconciled to him because of Christ's wounds, but you have the peace of God, meaning that he is going to give you an experience of peace in the fellowship of Christ's church. Note that peace be with you, verse 19, brackets with verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. And they bracket the wounds of Christ. And we even hear that they have gladness, that they have gladness in seeing Jesus. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and their fear was cast away. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Do you see, an experience of fear here is replaced by an experience of joy and gladness in the presence of your Savior. If you want to be lifted, come to Christ. Be in his presence and fellowship with his church. Indeed, we have gladness and he has not spared his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will we not also with him graciously give us all things? Gladness in Christ trumps concern with COVID. Remember the danger the disciples faced that evening, fear of violent death. As a matter of fact, all of them except the Apostle John died violent deaths for Jesus. In the case of Peter, we're told in John 21 what kind of death he would have as he stretched out his arms and was taken to a place he didn't want to go. That's a picture of the crucifixion. But no matter what you face, we have gladness in the presence of God, for He has forgiven our sins. He has relieved our guilt. He has given us a destiny in heaven, in heaven with Jesus and all His people forever and ever. And so, we can worship. We can even worship now. Our fears threaten to immobilize us, but they do not cancel us. Our fears do not neutralize our witness. We still can worship here. And it's a pretty big field, if you ask me. I don't know where we'll be worshiping in the coming weeks, but I do know that we are called to praise his name, either here or online. I want you to be together as a people of God. The third and final point, 
Disciples meet the Spirit, sending them to service, 21b through 23. We are sent to minister. We are part of what the Reformation called the priesthood of all believers. Now, it's very important that you grasp that verse 23 needs to be understood rightly. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. What this means is that if you declare the gospel and people believe, then their sins are forgiven. And if you declare the gospel and people do not believe, then their sins are retained. This statement in verse 23 is the equivalent of what we read in Luke 24 at the very end of Jesus' life. He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. You see, these words in John 20, 23 should not be construed to condone the establishment of a priestly subclass within Christianity. We are all priests in Christ's new kingdom, all believers. There's no special class of priests, men in robes, who have the authority to forgive others, so-called inheritors of apostolic authority that allow them, the special clergy, and them alone to forgive sins. That led eventually to the abuses of the Roman church in the Middle Ages, where grace was dispensed from a treasury of merit, so-called, by ecclesiastical authorities. But that is not what this verse means at all. As James Boyce points out, we need to understand it in the context of all of Holy Scripture. As it says in Mark 2, 5-7, through when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak? Blaspheme like this. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, it's true. God alone can forgive sins. But Jesus was God. So there was no blasphemy. But the point is, God forgives, not a priest. Priests cannot forgive, not those original disciples, nor any so-called descendants. The second illustration is Acts 10.43, where Peter is preaching to Cornelius in Acts 10.43. And he says to him, speaking of Jesus, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Three times, Christ, to him, the prophets witness, through his name, Whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Jesus alone saves from sin. And then the third point here is that the Greek for the words them, in they are forgiven them, and any, and retain the sins of any, those words are plural, meaning that no individual person's sins are forgiven or retained and are contemplated in these. Rather, Jesus is speaking of the group of people whose sins are forgiven when they believe in him, sending them into service. 
Rather, Jesus is he's speaking of that group of people who have their sins forgiven, sent into service. And then there's this other group of people who don't trust in Christ, and their sins are retained and judged. So what in question here is a public proclamation here on the Lord's Day in the house of God or outside the house of God and by you as a kingdom of priests as you share the gospel day by day. And I want to encourage you to share that gospel. We have some Johns that are available if you leave the service. They're in a plastic bag which, out of which the worship folders came. If you want a gospel of John to share with somebody this week, just raise your hand and they will give it to you. I want to encourage you this day to be those who share the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. And as you do that, you will be doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. He is saying, as he's sending them, as the Father has sent me, I also send you, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. We read that he breathed on them. And this breathing on them, that they would receive the Holy Spirit, is not the breathing that is associated with salvation. Peter was a believer. He had confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. These men, Judas was God by this time. These men were believers. It wasn't the uh, regenerating gift of the Holy Spirit. This is a gift for ministry. And he's saying that I am going to send you, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you for ministry in the power of the Spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. What's going on here? Well, remember back in Genesis 2-7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. There man is becoming a living being in the original creation in the physical sense. A man with a soul. There's a close connection here that this is the idea of, of receiving the soul that gives man a body and a soul. But now there is a new beginning. We are leaving behind the death and guilt and sin and moving into the life and hope of new life with Christ, serving in his kingdom. And this is what we are sent to do in this world, to bring this message of new life in Christ, a new creation, as I was saying earlier. Here is the new beginning that we need. And we are sent, having first been assembled, assembled on the first day of the week to proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection until he comes. We are assembled on the first day to remember who we are. We're part of that new creation that began on the first day of the second week, making it the eighth day. That day, which is forever. We are serving and we are awaiting a Savior from heaven to bring us into that new creation. And we are those who have received peace with God from the crucified, risen Lord no longer enemies. We have received the peace of God, no longer needing to be fearful. We have peace with God. We have the peace of God. And we have received the Holy Spirit so that we may declare the wonderful grace of Jesus and warn those who reject it that they remain in their sins.
believe, dear little flock. Assemble as you are able. Declare on this little corner of lawn here in Queensbury, New York, that we are Christ and are sent to serve this world as priests of his church, declaring the gospel of his peace in a world filled with fear. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, bless each gathered here at 548 and all those gathered by Anchor, Podcast, and Zoom. Lord, send us out to be your messengers, your messengers of peace in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.